This is Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. I'm Steve Schubert. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're talking about a character that sometimes gets overlooked in the book of Genesis. We're discussing Hagar and her son Ishmael and what their story means to the promise that God made to Abraham. Here's senior pastor Michael Gallup. So I want to start off with a question. And normally the opening question is a little bit of softy. It's like, you know, tell, tell us about some time that, you know, you did something as a kid or something like that. Well, not today. I'm going to ask a really hard question, and uh, it may be a little difficult to answer, but we'll give it a shot. So, I want you to think about and hopefully share with the group um, a time when you felt unseen, which is to say your very existence felt uncertain. Maybe it was a time of rejection. Maybe it was a time where you were objectified. Maybe it was a time where someone saw you not for what you actually are, but what they wanted you to be or imagined you to be. Mine isn't explicitly personal. It's more about my child. Uh, We really were struggling with Nehemiah, um, especially like in his later toddler years. You know, toddler's years are tough anyway, but it just felt like there was this massive disconnect where... um, Mary Grace was very compliant, and so when we would tell her to do something and we were very direct in our parental stuff, he, she just did it. She was happy to do it. Uh, but Nico was really resistant. He, he just he wouldn't just simply obey, and it was really tough, and particularly around um, as he got older and was able to begin to verbalize himself more, we began to realize that part of the problem was his desperate desire to be heard, which, which is another way of saying being seen. Uh, when we would get into something and, and we would tell him to do something, he, it wasn't that he didn't want to obey. It wasn't that he didn't want to uh, be in alignment with our desires. He just wanted to make sure that his personhood, his ideas, his feelings were also in the mix. And which maybe sounds like crazy. He's a three-year-old or four-year-old. Why, you know, who cares? No, that's a silly way to think it. But that's what we felt like, and that's the way we were acting. And uh, a friend of ours encouraged us to say, have you asked him? When we're talking about a specific issue where we were struggling, he says, have you gotten his opinion on it? And all of a sudden, everything changed. And so when we, he would start to get frustrated, instead of kind of doubling down on, I'm your father, do what I say, I would go, Nico, what do you, what's the matter? Why, why does this make you upset? I want to hear. And all of a sudden, he would begin to tell me, well, that's not what I thought, or you said this, or Bob, whatever it was. And I go, oh, man, I could see how that would upset you. Um, but this is what I meant, and this is what we need to do to help our family. And it was like a miracle. Instead of continuing to argue or continuing to fuss, he just said, okay. All of a sudden, being seen or being heard gave him a capacity to lovingly obey. He didn't, wasn't forced into a hole. He wasn't just an object that we moved around to fulfill our desires as parents. But he was a loved person. He was heard and seen and he belonged. And it has been tremendous. Now, it's not always that perfect. We're not always that good at it. But that's become a regular practice for us to simply listen to him. Allow him to voice his emotions and his opinions. It's been tremendous. 
But also think about how difficult it was for him before that to have this deep sense of injustice or invisibility and to not be seen. I think a common thread that, that's present in your story and all of ours is, is kind of what I said. There, there's almost a sense of like your very existence is uncertain. And so it maybe requires a, a strength of character to know who you are despite that. But, but the sense of not being seen threatens our very nature of existence. And, and this isn't just something we feel. This is actually a scientific uh, physics principle. It's called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. I don't know if you guys ever heard of this, but the, the really dumbed-down version of this is that matter, so we're matter, but kind of stuff, is fundamentally uncertain. It is only until a particle is observed, which is to say seen, that it is said to exist. So scientifically speaking, something does not exist unless it is seen. It's, it's kind of a, a different way of talking about the old philosophical question, if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Uh, scientifically, we could say that if there was nothing there to see it, then the answer would be no. Would, the says yes. Yeah, the audiologist says yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. There, is, there has to be a receiver. Uh, I think a lot of people throughout the world have gotten this intuitively. There's a tribe um, in South Africa, and their standard greeting when they would meet someone, like we say, hi, hello, they would say, I see you. I am here. When you think about our kids. Uh, I mentioned that already with Nico, but I think about my children. Like one, Their favorite word is, look, look, look. Whether it's something they've done, something they're seeing, whatever it may be, they want us to look as if nothing matters until I see it. We long to be seen, which is to say to exist, to matter, to be known. Yet, and I think we heard this in some of your stories, at times we also fear it. For if you truly saw me, maybe you would reject me. Maybe if you really saw all of me, who I really was, the unfiltered version, not just me at my best, but all of me, maybe you would not love me. So we hide in our shame, desperate to be seen by the one who would see all of us and still love us. I mean, I think that's part of the hint of joy that we see in the, the covenant partnership between Adam and Eve and, and, and uh, symbolic of all uh, close-knit relationships, but particularly that of marriage, this idea of being naked and yet knowing no shame, fully seen and fully loved, clothed in our lover's look. And yet, for most of us, I think we experience not being seen far too much. But we're not alone in that. Our story today is about just such a thing. It's about a person who is unseen. We've come to chapter 16 and the Genesis story. And in this point in the story, uh, we've been looking at the life of Abram, who God has called to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, that through him he would have um, a seed, that he would have descendants too numerable to count, and that through that promised seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. And yet, 
despite that promise, despite that promise, no worries, uh, despite that promise, no seed has emerged yet. There's no child. So we get to chapter 16, and God has just made this massive promise. He's reiterated what he will do. Um, and we come to 16, and now all of a sudden it's Sarah's turn to begin to manufacture the promise. So throughout this, we've seen Abram kind of taking matters in his own hands. He's tried to kind of manipulate his experience, his life, and the world. He's tried to manufacture the blessing in himself to no avail. And now it's Sarah's turn. So we read in verse 1, chapter 16. Now Sarai, uh, she's not Sarah yet. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. Hagar uh, is a fascinating character. Uh, her name means other. In fact, it would probably believe that Hagar is not actually her name. I mean, it's, it, if you were to read it just in Hebrew without thinking that it's a name, it just reads like she had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was the other one, the other woman. I mean, part of feeling like you're not seen is maybe someone not knowing your name. We don't know who she is other than these couple of autobiographical lines that she was an Egyptian and she was a slave. Now, in case you guys have missed the context, that's kind of a double negative there. I mean, this deck is stacked against her. She's the wrong race. She has no rights. She has no power. And she has no name. She's not seen and she is not known. She's the other. Verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. This story has a ton of parallels with the story of Adam and Eve. Um, the verbs that uh, are associated with the actions of Sarah are the exact same verbs that we see Eve doing with these, uh, and particularly the taking. You see her taking Hagar. Um, you, say, you see Abram listening to her voice, kind of coinciding, like you think of Eve and what she did, and then uh, Adam followed suit. Uh, what the author is doing here in Genesis 16 is positioning Sarah in the place of Eve, which is trying to manufacture the blessing. Remember, for Eve, it was trying to be, make the image of God in her, which, of course, we know was a gift, something she already possessed. Here, Sarah has doubted the word of God, just like Eve had. She says, the Lord has prevented me from getting pregnant. All God has said over and over and over again is like, I will do this. And yet in her mind is God who is not, precisely not doing this. So she makes this move and she takes her slave girl and she makes her surrogate, offers her to Abram as a wife. What's fascinating is like Adam and Eve, Sarah and Abram get what they want. They get a child. But while they get what they want, they don't want what they get. They're frustrated with this child, particularly Sarah. Um, 
And when she had first conceived, it says this in the rest of verse 4, when she had first conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And then Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. This was her plan. And yet Hagar looked at her wrong. And Sarah doesn't like it. She wants her gone. I mean, they got what they wanted, but they didn't want what they got. And I think in a way, I think we can honestly say that what they did was a sin. I mean, I think there's some clarity in the sin. I mean, this is, uh, by certain definitions, a rape. Hagar has no power, has no autonomy, has no authority. She's put into this position. She has no choice but to serve her masters in these ways. Consent isn't even on the table. Uh, the lack of monogamy, the two becoming one. I mean, there's so many levels, but at the core, the sin here is the manufacturing of the blessing. It wasn't something to receive by grace, but something to be grasped, to be taken. Paul uses this story as an allegory in the book of Galatians, and he says that, um, that when we live by the law in the flesh, which is to say when we try and manufacture the blessing, prove that we are like God, to seize it, to take it, And we are like children of Hagar. And he says, old Jerusalem. But as when we live by grace through faith, when we receive the blessing as a gift from the promised seed Jesus, then we are like children of the new Jerusalem from above. And so we see above maybe anything, at least what is happening in the story is Hagar is pregnant with disobedience. Either way, Hagar's womb, the child in it, was not the promised seed. And so we read in verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The word dealt harshly in Hebrew is literally afflicted. Sarah afflicted her. And for the Hebrew people in this culture, a master and a slave, an affliction more than likely, probably meant some sort of physical abuse. She probably was lashed upon the back, and in the midst of her turmoil, she ran away. She fled. Can you guys imagine what she felt? What Hagar felt? I mean, she's been objectified. She's been rejected. I mean, they don't see her as a person. They, they just see her as an object to reach an end. Here's some way that we can get pregnant. We've got this girl at our disposal. And they do just that. They treat her disposably. They kick her out, reject her, abuse her. It's possible also that she feels cursed. It says that she looks on Sarai um, and, uh, with contempt. And that word contempt is the same word that we see in Genesis 12 where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and those who despise you, look on you with deception, uh, I will curse. It's the same word, those who despise you, the look of contempt here. Um, I'm sure Agar, Hagar has heard those words. You, living in the house of Abram, uh, she's anticipated this promise that God has given her. She's heard the story, and the multiple stories of Abram's encounter with God and what he had promised him and what he would do. And, and she probably was excited as well on some level to see this child of promise. 
And despite the fact that she's been injectified, despite the fact that she's been used, maybe perhaps this child within her would change things. Maybe this would be an opportunity to be seen. And yet it's an opportunity to be cursed. As I said, she's pregnant with shame. She's pregnant with fear. She's pregnant with rejection. The prophet Hosea had this to say about Hagar. He said that she was pregnant with, quote, not my people, and quote, not my beloved. Hagar is fundamentally uncertain and is hiding. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. This is a tremendous turn in the story. Um, we we kind of maybe lose sight of what's happening here because angel of the Lord doesn't really ring a bell in our minds. Maybe it does if we've read a lot of scripture and studied it. But the angel of the Lord is a prominent figure throughout the Old Testament. He shows up often, and he is a messenger. Angel is just a word that means messenger in the scriptures. So he's the messenger of the Lord. And he's perceived and presented throughout the Old Testament as a man often. Um, he acts like a man, looks like a man. They see and receive him as a man. But he also speaks as, not just on behalf, not just for, but as God. And people speak to him like God. We'll, we'll see that here. He makes promises to Hagar and uses the same exact language that we see the word of the Lord to Abram. But this is his first appearance. Now, Abram's had some experiences with the Lord, but this is his first experience throughout the entire scriptures of the angel of the Lord, the God-man. He first appears here to the rejected other, alone in the wilderness by a spring, by a well. Which brings to mind our Lord, Jesus, who first made himself known in the fullness of Messiahship as the Christ as the Son of God, to the Samaritan woman by the well, a woman who was not the right race, not the right faith, who was rejected and alone and unseen, both by a well. A lot of scholars think that the angel of the Lord is in some way a pre-incarnate Christ, that he is an expression of the Son of God, it may just be possible that the first person to see Jesus is Hagar. It's just fascinating. Verse 8, And the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am running away from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring so that they cannot be counted for a multitude. This, this is a tremendous, tremendous experience. I, I love how the angel deals with her, how the angel of the Lord, he comes to her asking a question, where are you going and where you've come from? Again, echoing the question of the Lord in the garden. Where are you? If, if Adam and Eve are represented in Sarah and Abrams and what they're doing, then you begin to see in Hagar some of the consequences that she's been kicked out. She's isolated. She's alone. She feels cursed. 
But the Lord doesn't abandon her. He comes to her and asks her a question. It reminds me of my experience with Nico. Instead of just commanding, go this way or that way, we go and listen. And the Lord hears her, and he sees her, and he knows her. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son, and you shall call him Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are Elroy. Hagar is the first person and the only person in all the scriptures to give a name to the Lord. She names him the one who sees me. That's what El Roy sees. El meaning God, Roy, a verb meaning to see. She gives him a pet name, the one who sees me. And, and it seems like he likes it because he doesn't smite her. It says in the end of that verse four, she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? I mean, again, this is massive. The Hebrews believed in the scriptures of test that no one can see God or they will die. Yet she says, the Lord has seen me. She's seen me and I've seen him. And yet I live. She uh, receives the similar blessing and similar promise that Abraham had received. Despite her rejection, Despite her being unseen and unknown and being other in the midst of the wilderness and despair, God says to you, her, I will greatly multiply your offspring so that they cannot be counted. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's verbatim the same thing that God spoke to Abram. Remember, the promise was that he would be blessed, to be a blessing, and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through his child. All of them. Does that mean Hagar's family? Well, the story about Ishmael and who he will be, it, it's read a couple different ways. There's some ways to interpret it. Um, to me, it sounds a lot like Genesis 3, where there's kind of a natural consequence. Like, it kind of makes sense that the child of the woman who was kicked out, the child who has engendered jealousy within the family of the people of God, would be at odds with people. It, it kind of sounds like a natural consequence of the disobedience that come before. It, it, it sounds less like a punishment and more like a reality. And yet, and yet, the Lord sees her, speaks to her. She hears him. And this is what's tremendous. She's seen, and she sees the one who sees her, and she obeys his voice. She has faith in the word of God. She goes back. She submits. I, I, wonder, I wonder if her faith was reckoned for her as righteousness. And we begin to see that there are more similarities in the story as it unfolds between Abram and, Ish, and uh, Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, in chapter 17, um, we see that uh, uh, Abram blesses Ishmael, that Ishmael is circumcised, which is the sign of the covenant. He bears in his flesh the sign that he belongs to the people of God. Uh, he is prophesied that he would have um, be the father of 12 tribes. Does that sound familiar? 
12 tribes of Israel, and yet Ishmael himself has 12 tribes. And they return, and they become part of this, and they become part of the family, and then we come to chapter 21. We're going to skip ahead because we're going to stick with the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And after a long time, and Hagar, I think, I think Ishmael is about 13 years old, Sarai finally gets pregnant. The promise has happened. It's come to fruition, and something happens. Verse 6, chapter 21, Sarah said, excuse me, she's Sarah now. God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have ever said to Abraham that Sarah would have nursed children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abram made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit anything along with my son Isaac. Her view is small. For Sarah, the blessing means it's only for us. To be chosen means that the other is not. She kicks them out. They're gone. So Sarah says to Abraham, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. I mean, what, what's Ishmael doing here? He's laughing. That's what the name Isaac means. He's named laughter, which is this expression of joy that God has done what he said he would do. And Isaac has come. And here's Ishmael joining in the joy. He's excited to have a brother. He's excited to see the word of God come to fruition, to see something amazing happen. Yet this laughter is received as mocking. Ishmael will not laugh much longer. Verse 11. The matter is very distressing to Abraham on account of his son, but Abram, I'm sorry, but God called to Abram, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says, says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. Both are blessed. But the blessing, the blessing, comes through Isaac. Jesus will say to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. The Jew Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water. It's not much skin of water and gave it to Hagar, put it on her shoulders along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the sky was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes, and then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, do not let me look on the death of my child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. We have another first in our Bible. Hagar is the first person to weep. 
you imagine how they feel? Ishmael's probably about 15 years old now. And he's been laid down to die. And his mother cannot even bear to be by his side. She can't see it. She can't stand the thought of watching her loved one die. Can you imagine how they feel? Can you see it? Can you see them? Can you see their affliction? Their hurt? I imagine Ishmael felt like what Hosea would say about him one day. Not my people. Not my beloved. Rejected, uncertain, unseen. And God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God, there he is again. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. The story is supposed to elicit in our imagination a parallel to what Abraham and Isaac will experience on Mount Moriah when God asked Abram to sacrifice Isaac. And in the midst of despair, as his son's about to die at his own hand, God miraculously provides a ram. Same here, Hagar seeing her son about to die, dying because she has been obedient to God's word. He told her to go back and submit to Sarah. And she has submitted. And this is what her submission has led her to. More and more affliction. Yet in her faith and in her obedience has brought her to a place where she's offering her son as a sacrifice. And she prays. Prays for deliverance. Prays for hope. And God shows up. Although Ishmael may feel like an accident, he is not God's accident. Although he is rejected by the people of God. Yeah, Abraham, Sahara. Although he is rejected by the people of God, he is chosen by God. His name, Ishmael, means God hears. Shema, the famous Hebrew word, hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel. Ishmael. God hears. He is heard by God just as Hagar was seen by him. Hosea will say of Ishmael, of Hagar, those who are not my people, this is the word of the Lord, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And of those who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And the story ends with this affirmation that God is with him. Emmanuel, God with him. Emmanuel and Ishmael, seen and heard by God. Now, this is a big deal. Why is that? Because of the way that we normally think and talk about Hagar and Ishmael. I mean, it, it seems to me that these two, the matriarch of the Arab world, if you don't know this, and her son, uh, the Muslim faith sees 
Hagar as their mother. They see her as the birther of monotheism, that she was the one that the one God revealed himself to. Uh, in their annual pilgrimages to Mecca and Medina, they actually stop at a well in Beersheba and they reenact this story. This story. And they see it as a part of who they are. That despite their fundamental rejection, they were also accepted by God. And so they see Hagar and Ishmael as the matriarch and her son of their faith. And it seems to me that these two are indeed seen and heard by God. And I believe they both see and hear him. They are blessed by him. And I do believe that is precisely because of their afflictions. It is because of their unseenness, their otherness, their rejection, their forsakenness, that they are known by the man of sorrows. I imagine that they see in Jesus themselves. The stripes on their backs, the wounds of rejection and forsakenness. And in some way they hear the gospel that by his wounds we are healed. They're seen by God. But I think the question we have to ask is are they seen by us? I have to admit that I've had a lot of trouble seeing Hagar. I love the book of Genesis. It's my favorite book in the Bible. One of the main reasons I'm preaching through it right now is because it's my baby. I wanted to share with you this book that meant so much to me. It's been so formative in my faith. And as I came to this story, I realized I have always breezed over this part of it. I always saw Hagar as just an object. (laughs) She was just a pawn in the story of Abraham and his promise. I just saw her as a speed bump that the illustrated to me, you know, the play of fear and faith in Abraham's story. I, I just didn't see her. How ironic. I didn't see her. I objectified Hagar in my reading. I othered other. Yet, I believe the author of Genesis, which is in some ways to say God himself implores us to see her, to look. I mean, we get almost two full chapters of Hagar and Ishmael. There's a significant portion of these chapters in which Abraham and Sarah are not involved. We see them expressing faith, interaction with God. We see him promise blessing. We see no mediation of their relationship with God with Abraham. We see gut-wrenching details of their experience. It's their story. But when we don't see when we don't see the other, when we, when we move them, when we don't move them into this place of being one another, they don't see Christ in us either. They don't see the one who sees. There, there's a fascinating phenomenon that's happening in the Muslim world in the last decade. Um, there's been several uh, Muslim people that have come to faith over several years now, and the primary reason that they've come to faith is they've had, get this, a vision of Jesus. Like their mother, Hagar, they've seen Jesus. Doesn't that just give you chill bumps? 
uh, I saw one statistic that like one in 10 converts come to faith through a vision of Jesus. No mediation. There was no missionary. There was no Christian there to tell them the story. They just see him. And they see themselves in him. And they see him seeing them. And they are healed by his wounds. But we read the New Testament. We know that they're supposed to see him in us. We are the messengers of the Lord now. When we love them as ourselves, when we bless them as we have been blessed, when we don't treat them as the other, they can begin to see Christ in us. Yet, this week, I was called to see Hagar, not just in the text, but in the news. I saw a room of about 10,000 or so folks, most of them self-identified Christians, chant, send her back. About a Muslim congresswoman named Ilhan Omar. Send her back. I saw Hagar. I saw the other in Ilhan. I saw the rejection of the crowd chanting that she be kicked out for some perceived offense. Not my people. Not my beloved. Yet I also saw in her El Roy, the God who sees, Jesus, whom the crowds despised, whom the crowds chanted their hatred, send him to the cross. And I heard her, too. Her official response afterwards was a quote from the poet Maya Angelou. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. It sounds like resurrection to me. Now, this isn't about politics. I'm not asking you to vote one way or the other, not to accept policies. I think we can have civil discourse about the way we disagree with people. Now, this is about mission. This is about love. This is why I read the verse that I read in, first, in 2 Corinthians. We've been called to comfort others with the comfort that we have received in Christ. And what was that comfort? We had no claim to the promise. None. But grace. We read in the book of Romans, ha, that we were the enemies of God. And yet, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us because he loves us. And Christ implores us to love our enemies, which is to see them, to hear them, to know them. I thank God that the chorus of heaven did not chant, send me back when I showed up. But they rejoiced. They welcomed me. And I belonged. I mean, this is big precisely because of what's happening in our country now, but, but this is even bigger than that. The story of Hagar and Ishmael has been often used to pit, to speak of the, the war and the hatred between our faiths. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think that Islam... And I think the Quran are full of lies about who Jesus is. I'm not saying that. I do believe that. But how are they to know the truth? 
Because we're saying a lie about who Jesus is when we chant send her back. We're saying a lie about who Jesus is when we don't speak love to our enemies. We're not seeing Jesus when we don't see the other. What's fascinating is that I don't think the biblical story in itself leaves it at this sort of enmity between Ishmael and Isaac. In fact, it doesn't at all. Ishmael will show up again after Abraham's death. And the two, Isaac and Ishmael, are together, and they bury their father near Jerusalem, the city of peace. This affliction that they shared now, the death of their father, has made them one. Even for just a moment, even if it's just a glimpse of the hope of glory to come, well, every, night, every tribe, every nation, every tongue will declare together with one voice praise to Jesus who knows our afflictions and bears our wounds in his body. And then later we see the descendants of Ishmael, the Ishmaelites saving Joseph, another child of promise, whose brothers had afflicted and kicked out and abandoned. And he's alone and left to die in the wilderness. And who comes by and saves him? The descendant of Isaac is saved by the descendants of Ishmael, who sees him, sees his afflictions because they have known the affliction of abandonment, the affliction of being unseen. I ask you, who was the neighbor? (laughs) Who's the good Samaritan in this story? I pray that God would be gracious to us, that he would uh, grow in us faith to see each other. Not as other, but as one another. To see each other's wounds and to know that there's comfort. To know that there is resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the story We're thankful that you have shown it to us, that we could see your servant, Hagar. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. We'll be not so quick to build walls of privacy around our homes, our lives, our hearts, but to open ourselves up to love each other as you have loved us in Christ Jesus reveal Jesus to the woman at the well. That they may see that you are good. may see that you see them and hear them and are acquainted with their affliction so that they may be acquainted with your comfort. God, give us the courage and the faith to comfort others with the comfort we have received in you. Your grace and your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. Setting the Table is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast apps. You can learn more about us at thetablelittlerock.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at thetablelr. And we'd love to have you join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Red and Blue, Arkansas in downtown Little Rock. Our address is 1415 West 7th Street. Come. Taste and see that the Lord is good.